Hi guys, this is Laura, and welcome back to Let's Chat Healthcare. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for joining me today. Laura, I'm so glad to be here with you. It's an honor. Well, I am so honored to have you on too because you are making such a huge impact in the nursing field and we are all so, us all are so thankful for everything that you do. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. But you know, it's honestly the nurses at the bedside right now who are holding healthcare together. So I just one want to thank you for taking the courage to have a podcast as a nurse by the bedside. And to all day long, we are going to be here to support you because it is your voice that needs to be heard. So really looking forward to this discussion. <laughs> Me too. I'm really excited about it. Um, do you think that you could start with kind of an introduction about yourself, where you come from, and kind of where you're at in the nursing world? Yeah, so Rebecca Love, I currently serve as the Chief Clinical Officer of IntelliCare, which is one of the largest workforce management solutions for per diem staff across long-term care. So I oversee a 50,000 nursing workforce, nursing and CNA workforce across 29 states, across probably 5,000 different fields, uh, facilities in long-term care. So that's my day job, right? Um, but my professional background is that I was a nurse, uh, started off my career by the bedside in MedSurge, became a nurse practitioner, um, and then went on to start teaching. Uh, it was a, a big deal for me. I taught at a community college and my nursing students couldn't find jobs and my hospice patients stopped being able to find care. And that was the moment when I started my first company. I started a job board called HireNurses.com with my mom's nursing retirement um, and was on the verge of shutting that down on closing that business up because uh, I had no idea how to make money, right? Nobody talks to us as nurses about making money. Mm -hmm. And that's when a friend of mine told me to go to a hackathon and that hackathon changed my life. A hackathon was that three-day event. People come together, pose problems, form solutions. And uh, I learned, there's a, I, I did a TED Talk on this, so I'm not going to repeat the story on it, but literally that event was pivotal to me to teach me about innovation and entrepreneurship and the desire that if nurses could innovate around problems, they could solve real real major issues that we were facing by the bedside. So in that situation, I, I wanted to run a hackathon for nurses, found a school of nursing at Northeastern University. Uh, the dean at the time was Dr. Hanrahan, told her my story about this hackathon. She said, Rebecca, next summer, we're going to run a story, uh, a, a convention on innovation entrepreneurship. Why don't you run a hackathon? And I said, well, you know, I've been to a hackathon, you know, sure, I'll run a hackathon. And at this time, you got to think about it. Nobody talked about nurses as innovators or as entrepreneurs. There was no research on it. Nobody knew if anybody was going to come. I joined a team of volunteers. And for a year, we built to that event. And she called me two weeks before the event was sold out. Every single hospital was sending nurses. And the next thing I know, she asked me to become the director of the first nurse innovation and entrepreneurship program in the country. So we ended up managing that uh, building that out into a whole program. And then we spun it out into a national nonprofit and called Sanciel. And that's where we sit today. That's awesome. And what I really like about what you said is um, that you're trying to connect that nursing with the entrepreneurial side, because I feel like that's something that a lot of nurses um, don't have and aren't taught. And like they don't know how to express that. And I think that that's a really big thing that's kind of showing right now is we have all these things we want to say, we have all these things we want to do, but how do we, how do we communicate that? You know, how do we, how do we become part of the conversation? Like you're saying. 
you know, you're absolutely right. And, and honestly, even I, in the executive role that I, I sit, I find that I sometimes even struggle to express what I'm trying to say as a nurse to the business needs. Nobody ever taught us in nursing school strategy or business or finance. And that has set us back as a profession because the truth is this is the business of healthcare. So we were taught a lot to talk about, I think, I feel, I believe. But when you bring mm-hmm. that forward, and then also when we're often taught in extremes, right? Like we're sort of saying, well, this person's going to die if we don't do this, or this person's going to live because we did this. We were taught to speak to extremes all the time. And uh, what because the reality is, is what we face in front of us, we're always the extremes. But when you're talking to trying to move the direction of a business, the extremes are not what drives you uh, across mm-hmm. the, the bow. What drives you is the impact to the day-to-day quality or improvement or day-to-day metrics that are going to keep those doors open or the business functioning that you need to manage. And we're mm-hmm. not taught any of that way of thinking or that way to engage and make an, an effective argument to address the changes that we want to see by the bedside that translate up to the, the C-suites within our organizations. And I think that's why we're seeing this incredible amount of discontentment in the. I was market. just going to say that, yeah. You guys are seeing it, and I mean, California was the only state that's ever passed nurse to patient ratios uh, mm-hmm. in the entire country. But you're seeing NNU, the National Nurses United, which it just became the largest nursing association in the country when New York State just decided to join with NNU, which you know is is a really interesting movement that nurses are moving towards unionization to feel like they have representation and being heard in our healthcare systems. And they strongly, you know, the front line is, is looking for somebody to hear them and represent them. And I, I'm not sure that that's going to change unless we really start giving nurses the tool to express themselves and, and understand how to speak to the business side of healthcare. And how do you think we can do that? Does that include like nursing school, including those classes? Does that, I think that also includes involving nurses in those conversations. Um, and I think exactly what you're saying, this not being part of those conversations is leading to this not sustainable type of profession for us. And that is what's leading to the frustration. And hopefully that frustration will lead for good and will lead to change and will lead to involvement. But I think that another big issue is that because we're not part of those conversations now, bridging that gap to become part of them is pretty difficult sometimes, I think, even for like a bedside nurse trying to put themselves in those conversations. Sometimes there can be like a fear of retaliation because like we're viewed as like replaceable or like, oh, I'll just hire a travel, like a travel nurse or another nurse instead. So I think that that is a really big jump for the nursing profession. And yeah, how, how do we do that? Like, how do we, we, that's a big question. Sorry. <laughs> no, and, and, and you, but you really, you really said it really well. And let me just give some blank, uh, some statistics. So, because I, I think it helps set up the stage. So there are about mm-hmm. 5 million nurses in the United States, LPNs and RNs uh, combined, which means that nurses are the largest profession in healthcare, but not only the largest profession in healthcare, but the largest profession in the United States. There are, there are more nurses than police officers and teachers than any other profession out there. And I, I think that what that means though, is when you're looking across healthcare though, you realize that less than 25% of leadership in our healthcare systems is, is composed of nurses. Uh, the, uh, only about 18% of leadership positions actually of nursing have a C-suite title, most of those attributed to chief nursing officers. And less than 6% of our hospital or healthcare systems even have a nurse on their board. So mm-hmm. what that means is that your largest workforce 
it does not represent the largest percentage of leaders. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They're the minority of leadership within hospital systems. So there's this misalignment to what you were just talking about, to that the front line or that nurses are not being heard by the top tier. And this is a problem when we're trying to drive change. So when you're thinking about these things, one, it means that nursing schools are are teaching to clinical skill sets. And that's a problem because clinical skill sets are very important for us to do our jobs by the bedside. But that's where we've been kept, right? We have not been given these skill sets that are required to grow up in leadership. So either we start teaching them in nursing school or we start teaching leadership programs and development in nursing places of employment to upskill and start developing. How do you become a manager into a director, into an ACNO, to a CNO position? Mm -hmm. And but putting that idea as a finance and business and operations behind them so that they can do these things. The truth is, is and, and just one thing, if there's nurses that are listening, saying, well, I don't have time to spend 10 years in a hospital to try to figure this out and grow my career crowd, or Rebecca, what it would be the moonshot for me personally. And I think the degree that is unstoppable for nurses today that we need many more of is a RN, a BSN alongside an MBA. I think an mm-hmm. MBA degree is the only degree that I have seen truly break that glass ceiling uh, for nurses within the healthcare setting. And it gives them that skill set to speak to business. I don't, I don't have an MBA. And I have to tell you every day, I wish that I did. Um, because it is just, I've been told by people, it's sort of, sort of an analogy of sometimes people from the North think people from the South, you know, by the way they talk, don't sound very smart, but we know they're absolutely brilliant. And I've been told by people in business, nurses talk but they don't really speak our language, so they don't seem really smart. But we know that mm-hmm. they are. We just don't understand what they do. So we as nurses, nobody's going to teach it to us right now because nursing schools are going to say we're too busy teaching to the NCLEX. And we could argue that all day long, that the NCLEX is antiquated and it's teaching to the wrong side. We know we're graduating nursing students not ready for the workforce. That's why 70% of new grads have left the bedside since May 2021. And 50% of it, of uh, the new nursing grads were leaving within two years of practice, even before COVID. So we, we know we're failing in the environments we have. But if I was going to tell a nurse today what you need to do, go out and get an MBA. Because it is one of those things that if you want to have a leadership track, if you want to be able to express yourself in ways that people other than nurses are going to understand, even doctors don't understand us, the reality is, is we need to start speaking the language because we put ourselves into a box of nursing diagnosis, nursing uh, treatment plans that nobody else understands besides ourselves. And we need to change that. That's a really great point. I think that just starting to learn the language of the people that we're trying to associate with is a really great place to get to. And I think that I, I mean, I, when they talk about graduate schools and what, what you can do with your degree in nursing school and MBA is never mentioned. I don't think that it ever even was <laughs> told or even the word was even said by any of my professors. So no, because really we're not supposed thing. to think about money or finance, mm-hmm. right? Like money is a bad thing. Don't talk to nurses about money. Like it's the man behind the curtain, right? Like we're supposed mm-hmm. to do our jobs because we love what we do and we're very empathetic and we're caring mm-hmm. and we're compassionate. And the reality is we are, we do our job because we want to make people better. That doesn't mean that we do our jobs and should not have the knowledge of what this business is, because mm-hmm. that's what we've been kept in. And in all honesty, that ties back to history where nurses were rolled into room rates, kept away from the history or kept put as a cost center to healthcare systems, because in the 1930s, they tried to keep nurses as far away from the money as possible when they were creating insurance and reimbursement models were created for physicians, but they rolled nurses into room rates because they looked to hotels and they said, oh, maids are rolled into hotel models, into room rates. Let's just roll nursing in 
into it. And they remove nursing services from uh, a reimbursable model in healthcare and sort of decreased and diminished the impact that nurses had for the last hundred years. That's a whole nother topic um, that I talk about a lot, but it is it is absolutely fundamentally, uh, we've, we've kept this model because in nursing school, nobody ever talks to us about the money, but that's largely because it was to keep nurses away from understanding the finances of the business of healthcare, which has kept our profession in the disempowered position that we are, that has constantly put us on the wrong side of the ledger in any healthcare system. I was just reading an article actually about that, about how Medi- Medicare and Medi-Cal, how they reimburse. Um, and it's still the same, like you were talking about how it's joined in the nursing role is joined into the room, right? And I wonder if it is like a lasting effect of how nursing used to be more of a, um, I don't know how to explain it. but Entrepreneurial, a- independent practice. They build yes. for their own services. Actually, in the but 1920s, I do think. Oh, go, go ahead. Oh, just in the 1920s, what most people don't realize is that nursing as a profession, women got the right to vote. Nursing became the largest economic vehicle for women to establish financial independence in the United States. Mm-hmm. Nurses in the 1920s ran their own practices. Private duty nurses would be hired by uh, private families to come into the hospitals and deliver care. They would be issued two bills: nursing services, hospital services. Hospitals in the 1930s started to see nurses as economic competition, started to employ nurses directly. Then when they created the reimbursement models to keep nurses away from this, they started to take nursing services out of their bills. That's when insurance came along and they said, you know what? Roll them into room rates, keep them away, we'll reimburse for doctors. And that policy has stayed place for 100 years. But to your point, nursing in the United States in the 1920s and even prior to that, was very much entrepreneurial, had their own practices, build for their services. And actually, we're seeing some of these models come back. One of the examples is Navi Nurse, who two nurses out of Arizona have set up their own concierge practice where they bill private clients, don't take insurance, and pay their nurses based on hourly rates. We as nurses would be shocked that our services demand and people are willing to pay for it. But it is, I think we're going to start seeing some of these models reestablished, but it's absolutely brilliant. Do you think it would be a good place to be for nursing to be like the um, like the MD role in the hospital where they're employed by a third party and then the hospital contracts with them? Do you think like that would be a good idea for the nursing profession or no? Well, you know, what? honestly, I mean, I, I, I do. I, I, I personally do, because here's the thing. Um, CRNA is it works for them and it definitely works for physicians, right? Physicians know their value. They negotiate what they're going to pay. Where nurses right now are based into a capitated payment model into healthcare systems. After 20, we know we get step raises based on every step we do. At 20 years, we'll never make any more money. And the truth is, it's because we're on that cost side of the house. We're on the wrong side of the ledger. More nurses equal more costs without associated revenue for hospital systems. And because of that, they define our value. And we know that CRNAs pulled themselves out, did the same things as physicians, and have been very successful within their models recontracting back into the hospitals. I don't think it will really ever happen, unfortunately, um, because I think nurses are adverse to some of this risk. But I can tell you there are a couple rock star nurses out there who have done this, right? Um, there are nurses, um, and, and I'm blanking on the one that I'm thinking out of New Hampshire. She was an ER nurse. Uh, she 
went back, made her own W-2 company and started licensing herself back to the emergency room in New Hampshire. And then she got her friends to come work for her and they started licensing themselves back to the hospital. And, uh, oh, Karen O'Donnell is her name. You should look her up. She is a rock star on doing this. And the truth is, is that in specialties, especially ICU, maternity, ER, nurses could definitely pull themselves out and license their service back. We have staffing companies that do this, right? But there's the middleman. And the truth is, is that nurses really could do this themselves. Which is interesting because it's kind of happening with travel nurses, how they have that third party like you're talking about. So I don't know, maybe that might be a solution. They do. And as you saw, right, like, but it was the only area ever that healthcare went to to try to regulate and cap pay, right? They want to cap nursing travel nurse pay, right? And why did they want to do that? was to break that ability of that workforce from being able to effectively negotiate what the market would pay for those services, right? They're saying, wait, it's too expensive. We're willing to pay it, but it's too expensive. But you know, that was when we started to really realize, you know, as nurses, clearly we're worth more. Clearly we're worth more. You're willing to pay these nurses $200 an hour, but you're paying me 40. Clearly there is a, there's an ability to pay more for the services that I have value, but you've kept it down. So the greatest thing about travel nursing during COVID is it was the real significant, it caused the real first time significant wage increases of nurses in decades. The average increase of salary of a nurse's salary between 2010 and 2018 only increased by 1.6% per year. That's what an average nurse would receive on this. During COVID, and during this year following, have finally been the largest increases of nursing salaries, largely due to, and I'll be, I don't represent travel nurses, largely due to the impact that travel nurses had in the country. And to be very honest, there's only 25,000 travel nurses in the United States. They don't even represent, they represent less than 1%. But just them stepping away from the bedside and doing this had a tremendous impact on finally being able to increase salaries for nurses across the board. So people who are wanting to put down travel nurses, we should all be applauding them because they were the significant factor of the reason that we all started to make more money as nurses. And I also kind of feel like that's still actively happening right now because, I mean, there's still travel nurses at my job where I work and I see it sparking that frustration of, hey, we're worth more. Someone else is getting sitting here getting paid twice as much as I am for the same work that I'm doing. Like, And that frustration, I think, is going to encourage people to have a voice to say something and have, have a footing because they have proof that they're worth more. They have someone working right next to them, proof that they're worth more. And if all the nurses step back and said, hey, you know what, we're all going to go work for travel nurse companies, guess what? It would It would happen. Right. It really would change the dynamic. Now, I, you know, I know that's a very unpopular view yeah, <laughs> um, because people want security and things like this. So healthcare systems are going to have to recognize that nurses are aware of it. Yesterday, for example, the nurses in the UK went on strike. The nurse uh, voted to strike 177 hospitals across England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland decided for the first time in the history of the country that they were all going to strike at the same time. Mm. Nurses did this because based on a study that came out this week, it shows that one day a week nurses are practically working for free based on the cost of inflation, the lack of increase of salaries. It is going to show in England that there is no nurse. There is no health care without nurses. It is going to cripple and crumble healthcare. It is going to seize up healthcare and those things. And I think if we don't think this similar situation is potentially going to happen here in the United States, it absolutely is. So we're seeing some of these changes that are going on. And I know we're talking about some really um, 
tough issues here. Um, but those are the realities <laughs> of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. What, what are your thoughts on nurses changing their name? Because I have, t- I've actually talked to a decent amount of people where they say that they don't feel like nurse represents what they do. Do you, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> so we've done a really poor job on defining what nursing is, right? Um, yeah. And, and to this, to your point, the reason being is because nurses are, uh, nurses do so many different things and so many different specialties um, that they just use nurse to basically encompass all this. And one, I, I don't think is likely or possible that we will ever change the definition of nurse. Um, the question becomes, but can you segment out nursing by specialties to increase their value and understanding and express that better to the public, right? Right right now, we basically lump nursing services all under one bundle. And the image mm-hmm. of a nurse is a nurse standing over a patient holding their hand. But that actual image is absolutely wrong because if you look at what nurses do, they handle hundreds of millions of dollars of highly technical medical equipment, medication, and uh, research and science every single day to keep patients alive. But we've never been able to translate that. So I, I don't think it's so much as the idea of changing the definition or what are we title ourselves. Um, I, I think that would be a, a really far uh, challenging idea that I'm not sure would help or negate the, the final impact. But I think the reality is, is what we need to do is we need to start better defining what nurses do and expressing that externally. That now this is why that this podcast that you're having and having on <laughs> as many frontline nurses to explain what does their day look like? What are they managing? What are the disease states, the patient's lives that they're saving? That starts to translate out to the greater world. What is the impact and the value of a nurse? Um, So I I wouldn't say we should change the name. I think we just have to start saying we're more than just a nurse. And, uh, And we have to start saying what we actually do. And that is really hard to quantify because we- It is so hard. And we're gonna do it. And I think it's hard too, because people do such different things like- um, that I have like so many friends that are nurses, but I, and anyone who works in a different department, and we were just talking about this before the podcast, but it's like such a different world depending on which floor you work on. So it's, it, it is, I understand why it's hard to define. <laughs> yeah. Cause I can't tell you what an ICU nurse really does. Right. Like I, I look yeah. at their day and I have no idea. And I really can't tell you what a nurse and I, I, well, I can tell you what a nurse in long-term care does. I can tell you perhaps because I was a med surgeon nurse, what they do, but I couldn't tell you what maternity or labor and delivery mm-hmm. or, you know, dialysis nurses do on a regular basis because they are so specialized, but somehow they have lumped us all together that a nurse is just a nurse. And the reality mm-hmm. is, is nurses make up over probably a hundred different specialties of highly regulatory trained and, um, you know, Know, delivery of services that would require four to five years of highly specialized training to be able to step into those things. Today, you could not take a person off the street and have them step into a hospital and operate as a nurse. In fact, I would argue you couldn't take hospital administrators and put them into the role of the nurse and be able to do this. I don't think you could take a lot of doctors and have them step into the role of the nurse and do that. And we saw that clearly during COVID when nurses, when doctors were trying to step into the role of ICU nurses and they had no idea how to program pumps or manage vents or uh, put on uh, manage oxygen. These things are clear that nurses are highly trained and skilled specialists in the areas of medicine and technology, but are not quantified or valued as such. Even to take it a step further, I don't think you could take me as an ED nurse and put me like in labor and delivery and I would have no idea what I'm doing. We would, we would muddle our way through, right? But the reality is, to your point, 
those years of knowledge and experience and transfer of information between nursing specialties um, and that training is not something that, uh, and, and what we're actually seeing is this problem uh, with all of these experienced nurses leaving. The average age of a nurse in this country is 52. But in a study that just Epic put out, the average length of experience on a 12-hour shift now in a hospital in the United States has just dropped to 2.7 years of experience. That's the average mm-hmm. amount of experience of a nurse on the floor. It is the first time that we've seen, this is, this is just terrific, because could you imagine walking into your bank and saying, hey, give me the most experienced banker you have on staff today to help me draft my mortgage. And they're like, oh, this nurse, this, this banker has two years of experience. You're like, what? Like, I mean, this is, this is the reality of what is happening in nursing. And um, uh, it's, it's petrifying to me. It's absolutely petrifying. And I mean, working in the emergency room, I can very clearly see the difference between nurses and there's nothing there's, it's not bad. Like a nurse only has one year of experience. You like, there's so much to learn those they're, they're meeting the expectations, but the difference between them and someone with 30 years of experience and like those 30 years of experience nurses are the ones that are teaching it, that are passing on that information. And if you don't have that person passing on that information, because like, how did I learn how to work in the ED? I didn't learn how to work in the ED in nursing school. I had no idea what I was doing. I learned how to work in the ED by watching this nurse with the 30 years of experience run a trauma. How do I know how to run a trauma? I watch that nurse run a trauma. How am I going to know how to run a trauma if I don't have someone to watch to run a trauma? And that's what's it, happening. It's, it's petrifying, right? Yeah, like yeah. to your point, they're not here and they're leaving. And, and, you know, I'll be very honest, the Rondon Devat verdict where the nurse was, she was criminally prosecuted, charged and found guilty of making a medical mistake, even though she self-reported it due to system failures, has, I think, the most experienced nurses petrified because they realize mm-hmm. that the system, the environment we work in in healthcare is highly unregulated or, well, it's very regulated, but it's highly uncertain. It's a very complex environment. Nothing goes the same. And many of the situations that nurses make mistakes on are because the system has caused those failures, not the nurse. Um, But they ultimately hold that responsibility. And I think a lot more nurses are looking and saying, you know what? I always thought we could lose our license. I could lose my job if I made a mistake. But I don't think any of us thought that we could go to jail um, for making an unintentional mistake when we were trying to save a patient's lives. And I think the risks have gotten too high uh, because I don't I don't understand why nurses are going to jail when patients die and they self-report. But the hospital executives who set up those environments that lead nurses to make these mistakes are not equally held accountable. Um, so I think those are the kind of things that are going through the minds of these nurses who are saying, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and get a job at Starbucks because I know I'll make less money. But I know if I make a mistake, the worst is that I make them a new coffee, not that I'm going to be criminally prosecuted. And I think for me, obviously being criminally prosecuted is a huge deal. But another thing for me is like the moral injury of it. When you are sitting in an emergency room and you have these sick kids sitting out there for 12, 13, 14 hours and they get back and you're like, I'm doing everything I can. But if I had those resources, I could do more. And sometimes when I consider just going going to work at a less stressful job, I'm like, hey, I... Even, hey, if I mess up, at least it will be, and there's nothing wrong with working at a coffee shop, but at least we'll be making a coffee wrong and I'm not stressed and I make a mistake that risks someone's life. Like for me, like that's, and I see it with people like other nurses that I talk to, like it's definitely the risk of losing your license. But honestly, if something happens like that, like I wouldn't want to go back to nursing. 
No, and I think you're, really you're hitting on something. We used to call it double victim syndrome, which when a nurse made a mistake, um, God, they beat themselves up, right? Like none of us, yeah. none of us became nurses. We all became nervous because we wanted to alleviate suffering. When we make a mistake mm-hmm. and harm somebody, it is because there was something that there was an invite. This is what we're talking about is two very different things. There's injuring somebody with intent. And then there's injuring somebody because the system failed and you made that mistake unintentionally. And none of us as nurses can live with ourselves when Mm -hmm. we would harm somebody. And to your point, it's the moral injury to know that, you know what, I hurt somebody and we could never go back. And that situation actually came up in ICU nurse in the NICU several years ago. And that's why we call it uh, double victim syndrome. Um, Gave the wrong meds, gave an insulin dose that ended up killing a baby. She went out and she committed suicide after that because... The reality is, is that she couldn't live with what had happened, what she had done. And I think that's so much of what we experience as nurses. We have so much guilt over when a patient dies and we did everything we possibly could. The kind of guilt or moral injury that exists for us, if we actually made a mistake that leads to harm is is devastating for us. And I think another really clear example of that happening is um, like in the emergency room, we have the nurses that sit and watch the waiting room, right? And we have the nurses and they're the ones that determine, hey, is this kid sick? Is this kid not sick, right? I think that um, a personal experience that I've had with that, that maybe I could share is, so, I mean, the waiting times are getting longer. It's peak, it's peak flu season, peak RSV season. People are sitting out in the waiting room and there was a patient that I was like, hey, this kid needs to be seen, but he's not like, doesn't need to be seen right now. So what happened is he ended up waiting in the waiting room for like five, six hours. And then his mom brought him back up to me and he was a lot sicker than the, and I was still there because I'm working my 12 hour shift. So, and he was a lot sicker than the first time I've seen him. And then, and I, I mean, I check in 180 kids a night. Like I can't remember exactly everyone, but like, it's like, I, did I make a mistake? Did I miss something? And like, even though I wouldn't, trying to look at it objectively, I would say I did everything I could. I charted in oxygen when he came in. I checked it. I charted like, and I charted it in the chart at, in real time. So I know that I did it then. But even just thinking about it, it there's definitely like some, like, I don't know what the word is exactly, but I feel no, like- No, you have this guilt or, like, and you're feeling like- You have I this guilt of like, I missed something. Did I miss something? Like, because I, I can't remember him exactly. It's No, but also that, you have these machines who give you this baseline. And then you have this nursing intuition. And then all of a sudden, a few hours goes by, and this is how critically things can change. And I remember I, just a few months ago, I was in the emergency room with my oldest, and a little boy was sitting in front of me, and his parents didn't speak English. And the, to your point, we had been waiting four hours. And I watched as this child became more listless, would barely cough, and then pass back out, go back out. And the, the babies was, you know, this was it. And I finally got up and I went over to the front desk and I said to the head of the ER, I said, I, this baby, something's going on. I'm a nurse. I'm sitting across from him. Um, this baby has had a dramatic change of standless. He's barely responsive in his parents' arms at this point in time. They came in, they got him. He coded five minutes mm. back. And um, you know what? I, I know exactly what you're saying, because we're looking at this situation uh, through the eyes of, God, we're trying to do everything that we can in situations where the experiences are just getting worse. We don't have enough nurses. Wait times are going up. There is nobody there to see these people. And the reality is, is how do we change that? And I think it's going to be nurses 
who need to lead the way to really drive these changes. And, and this is why these conversations that we're having are so important, Laura. Yeah, I agree. And thank you so much for everything that you are doing for the nursing profession. We are so thankful for you that you are putting voices out there and encouraging people to put their voices out there. And I'm, I have a lot of optimism after our conversations and meeting people like you. So thank you. Laura, I'm telling you, like, this gives me hope. Um, your conversations, uh, we need more bedside nurses out there talking. There's a lot of administrators and executives out there talking about the nursing workforce. But the truth is, is we need to hear from the nurses on the front line. And I'm going to leave you with one final study, which was called the Woodhall Study. And it was done by the editor of the USA Today uh, in 1998, who wanted to study why nurses were not quoted more in the news when they found that they were germane or central to the story, right? And at that time, they found that only 4% of nurses were ever cited by the media. This study was repeated in 2018 under Barbara Glickstein. And what they found is not only had we not grown in terms of media quotes or citations or speaking on our behalf, but the number of stories actually decreased by half. So nurses are not, in 2018 were cited in news stories less than 2% of the time. If we want to know why our voices are lost, what, why everybody else is able to pol create policy and regulate uh, the nursing profession, it's because we've abdicated our voices to everybody else but ourselves to speak. And this is why what you are doing with your podcast, that is absolutely critical because it's time we as the profession take back our voices and it's an honor to be here with you. And I can't wait to see where you go and where the front line goes from here. So thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.